Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Bo Knudsen, the Managing Director of Global Equities at Sea Worldwide Asset Management. Many listeners may not be familiar with Sea Worldwide, but the Denmark-based firm manages over $20 billion. Bo has been a portfolio manager since 1989 and has had his hand in some strategies that have generated incredible outperformance versus their benchmarks over long periods of time. In this insightful conversation, we discussed the characteristics of a typical Sea Worldwide compounder, the investing culture that encourages employees to stay with the firm for decades, his history with the company Novo Nordisk, the Danish company that is now well known for its weight loss drugs, how the firm approaches ethical and sustainable investing, and the elements that have allowed Sea Worldwide to generate such meaningful outperformance over time. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Sea Worldwide's Bo Knudsen. Given that this firm is located in Denmark, and therefore many of our listeners will not be familiar with Sea Worldwide, would you spend a few minutes talking about the firm's history? Certainly, Ben. Sea Worldwide was founded on one simple idea um, nearly 40 years ago. That was the idea of finding the best 30 stocks worldwide. And um, that, that was the foundation for the firm. That is the foundation today. And I expect that to be the foundation also when we celebrate our 100-year birthday in 2086. You, you and Charlie Munger both. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And so um, this firm has an association with the Harbor Capital Fund, uh, Harbor Capital Group. I mean, what is the benefit to see worldwide of being associated with those funds and, and being part of Harbor? Well, we are proud to be have been chosen by Harbor. Harbor selects the absolute, uh, some great managers, the absolute best. I would, I would highlight, um, proud to be part of that uh, that family. Great. 
And so as I was looking through the website, I noticed the firm offers a number of strategies. As we think about how this firm has grown over the last 40 years, was there one strategy that did well at the beginning that you were able to leverage to launch new ones, or was the path slightly different? The first um, strategy, our international strategy, launched the firm. And um, back then, the Nobel Foundation started with, with uh, the Nobel Foundation being our first client. And eventually, uh, the international and uh, especially the global Max 30 Stocks Worldwide Strategy uh, was the foundation for success. And uh, today, Ben, still 80% of assets under management is in that strategy. So yes, we have other strategies. They link up and play into the core global international strategy. We are equities only. So actually, there is, there is a common story here where uh, we, we think that global is our core, and then we have branched out. Um, but again, the core is global international. And you already brought up the 30 stock philosophy and the importance of con concentration comes up over and over in your materials. I mean, I'd love to hear where that 30 number came from. And it doesn't sound like that's evolved over time. So why has, you know, why has that been the right number for the last 40 years? Yeah. Uh, so 30 um, has been and is set in stone. So I've been with the firm for 27 years. We have never had more than 30 stocks. Where does it come from? Well, uh, up through the 80s, there was some academic research also challenging the assumption and the benefits of diversification. Some, I think, called it diversification, uh, just adding stocks without um, reducing uh, the, the risk of the portfolio, just adding noise. And uh, we are big believers in that, uh, that theory and uh, big believers that you have, to, you have to have a maximum. We think it's a very, very healthy discipline and, and we have followed that uh, ever since. It creates also a one-in-one-out principle, uh, Ben. You, you restrict yourself Sometimes frustrating. You might you might want to add a stock, but you always, if you add the thirty stock limit, you have to sell to get a new stock on board. So there's a very powerful discipline in that, and that's why we've held on to it. And thirty has been the number that we've been comfortable with all along, and we've stuck to that. And has there ever been a situation where there were twenty or the thirty? You know, that, that 30 is the max and you usually stick to kind of like right around 30. Yeah, we would. Uh, yeah, never, never, never above uh, 30. So we have uh, at times been at 27, 28. Going back in history over the 27 years, we might have been at some states 24, 25. But we have uh, we have gravitated towards close to 30. And, and when I think about trying to cover the entire globe and finding the best 30 investments, uh, my brain starts to hurt a little bit, given like the, just the number of securities 
um, that, you know, you have to have vetted in order to make that, uh, you know, kind of assertion. What does that process look like of, you know, kind of just going through the universe to whittle down to an investable universe that is obviously much smaller than, than, than the total addressable market? When I joined uh, the firm, there was a 30 stock portfolio already. The process ever since has been to optimize that 30 stock portfolio under the one in one out principle, looking at a pipeline of ideas, looking at specific names and then compare and contrast with what is in the portfolio already. So this continuous competition for capital has been going on ever since. We have, of course, built a library of knowledge uh, over, over those uh, years. We have a rather deep in-house team uh, with a lot of uh, experience uh, on the team. So what we have built is a knowledge base. Fortunately, we've also been in a situation where people stay on board. So people stay and knowledge stays. And that way around, we have, we have a big library of uh, attractive names for replacement. But I really want to stress the competition for capital. So it starts and ends with the existing uh, names in the portfolio. And then we constantly try to optimize, constantly optimize over a five, 10 year period. What do we think offers the best risk reward uh, for, uh, uh, with a portfolio perspective in mind? So that's how we work in practice and how we've worked over the years. In that optimization process, I'm interested in how you balance quality versus kind of valuation as you're thinking about one in, one out. Is it, you know, do you want to own kind of the best companies, right, from a what have competitive advantage margins returns basis or does you know in order for it to get in the portfolio does it also need to you know have a better you know potential IRR because of the valuation than maybe something in the portfolio yes at the end of the day of course uh, we we want to create a strong uh, return risk uh, ratio and um it's, there's more to, to it than, than valuation. We uh, are interested in buying at a reasonable valuation, but uh, we think that valuation is, more, uh, is a more uncertain discipline. What we emphasize um, is very much uh, the, the perspective of finding companies that have a strong right to win ideally a permanent right to win, hold on to and improve their position. Uh, and, it, there are, and then typically also be uh, being exposed to a very attractive and growing market. Uh, we talk about the right to win, yes. And the, the right to win is typically anchored, what we call domain expertise, and or scale. So that those are the key aspects uh, that we are, are looking at when finding uh, companies uh, that uh, we think has um, 
the right to be in our best 30 stock portfolio. And you have a piece on your website called The Anatomy of a Compounder, which I love because obviously this podcast is called Compounder, so it's perfect okay. for, for, for our discussion. And in the piece, there's a section about avoiding the fastest growing companies. Can you break down the reason you focus on sustainable rather than aggressive growth in your strategies? Certainly. Um, let me share a statistic uh, uh, on the existing portfolio, our international strategy. Uh, the um, average lifespan of the companies in the portfolio is 111 years. And that compares with the existing composition of S&P of around 50 years. So we that this is all about compounding. Compounding and sustainability of growth is completely linked together. So we really try to understand whatever we have, we are, we are having a company here that uh, is going to be there also 10, 20, 30, preferably 100 years down the road, because then there's some compounding to go for. Of course, we want that growth to be profitable and, and um, creating what we all want, right? Free cash flow for uh, our um, for 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 investors, including uh, ourselves. But uh, it's the compounding that matters. We find that in the highest growth segment of the market, there are two problems. One is hype around valuation. Two attracting too much capital because there's too much hype around it. So we respect that there's money to be made in that segment. We're just very careful. Uh, and um, yes, we invest in higher growth companies, um, but the core and our sweet spot companies that are growing five to 20% um, per annum and Again, emphasizing sustainability of growth uh, rather than magnitude of growth. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And another topic that's uh, in your materials has to do with companies that are trying to develop a new competitive advantage or another right to win, as you might put it. So I'm interested in how, what the telltale signs of a company that is doing exactly that versus someone who's just milking a big historical advantage um, and, and and not necessarily reinvesting at the pace that that you would want if, if they were going to create, you know, another right to win. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a, there's there are angle many angles to that. Uh, first of all, um, what are we looking for here? Well, talk is. Uh, sometimes a bit cheap, so you would rather see action and real investments happening. When it comes to companies that have a, a strong position already in a, in a growing uh, area, 
that is, uh, and, and a segment of the market that is profitable, you want uh, companies that are that are investing for the future. So, yeah, if you have um, talking about, for example, the, the locksmith market, the world's biggest uh, locksmith is um, Asa Aploy. And uh, for disclosure, this is a company that is uh, part of the strategy. Uh, so Asa Aploy is uh, uh, scales bigger than number two and three in uh, in its uh, in its competitor space. And so if they use five uh, percent of their revenues on R and D, and number two. Uh, competitors uh, three times smaller, they automatically spend three times the R&D, hence benefiting from the scale. You just want to see that executed well, of course, see them being sensible, and you want to see that expressed in them creating products, meaning, yeah, you can look at numbers, you can look at market share, you, you'd like to see market shares going up, right? But you will. You also need to just fundamentally look at, uh, not just anecdotal, but also expert um, comments around the quality of the products, new products that are actually coming out. We listen to the nerds. We are nerds ourselves. We are stock and company nerds. So we listen to nerds that are interested in for lack of better examples, the locks, locks and, and lock systems. And that, so we listen to nerds and you, you want to understand the basic qualities. At the end of the day, you need to, to invest in companies that are making a key difference for their clients. And uh, so it's, it's more, there's more uh, to it than looking at the exact numbers that are coming out of of uh, looking at uh, accounting and uh, and quarterly reports. Are you explicitly looking for companies that are trying to create a second act, like a, a new market that, that they've never been in? Or is it really more about reinvesting in the core or maybe even kind of like a, a hybrid? I'm, I'm interested in the, the idea of, you know, creating a new competitive advantage. Is that a is that in a totally new business line, totally new market, or is that something that can be um, accessed through simply investing in what the core business is? Yeah, uh, it depends. But what my primary answer would be us preferring companies that are nerding around their domain expertise and continuing to really exploit that domain and some areas and domains are more interesting to be an expert in than others. Some domains you, you can be an ex expert and you are also allowed to make a profit for prolonged periods of time. And then continues, continuing to reinvest and continuing to create new products, a la the example that I highlighted with uh, what you could call the world's biggest locksmith as a applaud. So and we like the domain, the exploitation of domain expertise, and then that way around building scale and a strong position. But if you can then 
enter into an area that is linked to what you do already. It could be via a sensible acquisition. Now, acquisitions are is a tough way to grow. It's a complicated way to grow. Uh, but it can be done. Um, so uh, Atlas, the history of Atlas Copco, for example, uh, another another um, Scandinavian company uh, that is also part of the strategy, is uh, a, a world leader uh, in compressor technique. So selling compressed air, essentially, and in, uh, an essential part of production processes on across factory floors across the world. Well, this is a company that then um, expands and has some history uh, into uh, expertise around vacuum, uh, creating vacuum, vacuums and uh, taking matter out of uh, creating a, a, a vacuum situation that is needed in semiconductor production, for example. Via a, a couple of acquisitions um, less than 10 years ago, they have actually built a world-leading position in vacuum pumps used in the semiconductor manufacturing process, especially in semiconductor manufacturing uh, at the, the most advanced nodes where you need particular circumstances to be able to produce um, semiconductors at five nanometer and below. So this is a company that was an expert in, in one area where they've been able to move into a, 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 an adjacent area and succeeding there. At the end of the day, you need to have a, a strong culture and, and, the bill, and a, a target of, of, of growing the firm, uh, but growing within and your areas of expertise. Um, that's what we prefer to, to invest in, yes. Great, thanks for that. And we've talked a lot in abstract and, and, and in terms of some detail in some companies that you own. I'm interested a little bit in, you know, we've established that you have a very like high bar for quality um, companies, but you're also careful not to overpay. So I'd love to talk a little bit about valuation. Yeah. From what I gather, you're somewhat skeptical of the ability of static multiples, such as price to earnings ratios, to capture the value of growing companies. Maybe you can discuss some of those shortcomings. I actually think that a simple PE can be a reasonable approximation and a, a reasonable starting point. But obviously, it's a shortcut that, that uh, doesn't take into consideration free cash flow generation, one. And two, uh, there are shortcomings around uh, the simple PE multiple because it doesn't take into consideration balance sheet. I think, we think balance sheet strength is important, in, especially in times of trouble, because suddenly it's the debt holder that runs the firm for short-term interest payment or pay, interest rate payback, rather than strategic developments for the long-term. So it's, it's, it's too simple to, to look at, uh, at a P multiple. There are... Uh, some shortcomings, um, but at the same time, 
valuation is not an exact science in our view. So again, looking at where the multiple is compared to its own history, well, it's a starting point, something to take a look at and then uh, go deeper in your uh, analysis. But we would rather spend um, our time understanding whether the company has a permanent right to win more than valuation exercises. And if I, if I may then just highlight that I think when you talk too much about and focus too much on valuation, I think you focus too much on the stock versus the company. So we would rather emphasize the company because at the end of the day, if you have a longer term horizon, the company is key. It's the company that pulls the stock. It's the powerhouse that pulls the stock. There's so much going on in the stock market, so much action around stocks, less so around companies. But really understanding the fundamentals of the company for us is key and, and uh, tops uh, the importance uh, by far uh, compared to valuation. So the, the a final thing I want to mention here, obviously you can find a great company that grows over the next 10 years, but if you overpay in the beginning, you don't get the benefit in the stock. So that's, that's coming back to the, uh, the concept of understanding uh, whatever the, uh, the, whatever there's a reasonable valuation. And that would, that, that would be, a, that would, that would be a range around that typically linked around the multiples. Got it. And so there's not, you, it doesn't sound like you spend a whole lot of time thinking about what exactly this business is going to look like in seven years and trying to forecast that into a DCF. Is that a component of your process at all? Or um, as you said, you know, the valuation side is really the, you know, kind of secondary to finding the businesses you want to own. We are, uh, we are taking a, a view uh, on, uh, on that and how the, the numbers could develop over the next five, 10, 15 years, we have, we have some thoughts around that, thoughts uh, on that and, and do uh, some analysis uh, on that. Again, to avoid the situation where we overpay. Uh, but uh, an exact number on the intrinsic value of the firm uh, for us is um, a bit of an illusion. Hmm because of the dynamics it's a dynamic world we live in now uh, and and has always been and it was always been so the dynamics um are, are hard to capture in a single number even in a in a range uh, we are very op uh, uh, occupied by thinking uh, in a dynamic rather than in a static way and uh, you don't want to put up a structure, build an organization where you emphasize, for example, valuation, because there's a risk, at least, that it becomes too centered around and too static, too centered around the stocks and too static. And I'd love to dig in a little bit to that, because that's an interesting point you made. What aspects have you built into the process 
to make sure that there is dynamic thinking about the existing holdings and that there's a, you know, whether it's a re-underwriting or a devil's advocate, what what do you do to make sure that your uh, beliefs, forecasts, narrative on companies haven't become stale? Several dimensions here. Uh, I would like, first of all, to go back to the one-in-one-out principle. The existing positions are constantly challenged by new ideas, meaning it's we might fall in love with the stock, but, but there are new ideas coming up all the time that, that is challenging the idea. So that would be my, my most important uh, most important comment around that. Great, thank you. Um, and I get the sense that one of your edges uh, is your ability to take a longer term time horizon than can most investors. I'd love to hear about your ideal holding period and then you know maybe talk a little bit about companies or highlight some companies that you may have owned for years. Yes, so so the ideal holding period is it's a the, the, I have a classic uh, answer to that and that, that answer is forever. Because uh, my experience, our experience is it takes time for fundamentals to express themselves in stocks. A company growing bigger over time, but all of the quarterly noise it can be a hindrance. Uh, and eventually, but eventually we think that the stock will uh, and the market uh, stock market will appreciate a company growing bigger uh, over time so that that is um, that is our fundamental theory and we have seen uh, for example a company that uh, and everybody knows as an example of this development is a uh, is a nestle that has been in the portfolio it's it's a company that has been able to to actually develop over time. This is a company that has survived two world wars and uh, still uh, in, a very, in a very good position in, in many areas. And um, over, over the years, you've seen earnings and cash flows growing, not necessarily the stock price following that development perfectly. But over a 10 and a 20 year period, you see these two lines trending together. Um, let me add uh, also when it comes to being critical and really thinking is thinking about the prospects and long-term prospects opportunity for the company. We also work with uh, our primary win window into top-down will be taking a more thematic view about the world. Now, we are stock pickers. We're not theme investors. We are stock pickers one, two, and three. But uh, it's interesting to understand where the world is moving. And there are some tendencies that can be a bit hard to put into a spreadsheet, but this creates a natural tailwind. An example of this is 
the development uh, of higher and higher quality pet foods. First of all, now that we talk about Nestle, Nestle is a leading um, player in the pet food market, and it's an it has been an important driver of growth. Demographics, including the the global trend of people, more people living alone. The aging population, of course, that's what I've referred to when I talk about demographics. And the higher uh, income levels trending in the right way, just see, we, we are quite comfortable in looking out uh, um, with good prospects, solid prospects uh, for pet, the pet food market overall. So players in, in and around pet food will, will be in a good position. So this is a this is a, a, a theme that plays out and will co probably continue to play out. Obviously, we will, con we will monitor the, the, this theme and eventually try to understand if it changes or not. That's also a part of, of, of our job. But what I want to highlight is it's important for us to combine the understanding from a, from a stock-specific uh, perspective, combining that with the understanding of overall, are there some clear tendencies that uh, powers through the economic cycle and secures our long-term orientation? In the nature of investing is that nobody gets every stock right. So I assume that there are situations where certain securities appreciate a lot and others in the portfolio don't. And eventually the big, you know, the ones that have done well become a bigger part of the portfolio. How have you thought about position sizing, especially relative to the stocks that have done really well over time? Yeah. Uh, so we have um, the, we have the view that, and the, uh, the methodology that uh, when when we uh, methodology that when we go to an eight percent position in the portfolio, we start really seriously consider and and start bringing the position out around eight percent. That's that's where we where 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 we've historically um, reduced position. We can't have more than 10 percent uh, in one position. We think a full position for us is a 3% position. We often start with 1.5% and then build the position. It can, take, it can take a couple of years. Eventually, we search for a, a full position of 3 And again, one uh, we think good thing about having a focused portfolio is all stocks matter. We want positions that matter. The problem having positions, uh, say below one percent, is that they are not in, in important enough for you, and you risk it risks influencing your time consumption in a negative way. Both spending too much time on a small position, or spending too little time on mm -hmm. a small position. 
all stocks matter. That's why a concentrated portfolio for us is the right way. And we're going to talk a little bit more about cell discipline in, uh, in a minute because there's a specific security I'd like to discuss. But I want to take a step back. And one of the things that struck me as I was looking through your materials is the incredible outperformance of the international equity strategy since 1986 versus its benchmark. And, you know, I'm, I'm just interested in your overview, have, given having been there, I think you said 27 years, what do you think has allowed this strategy to do so well over that period of time? Um, I, we have we've been able to invest in in the, uh, the right companies. So more right, we're more we've obviously been more right than wrong. But the foundation for that, of course, is us taking a longer time horizon, longer perspective than the average investor out there. I think I think that. To, together with the max 30 stock competition for capital concept i think that's that's been key uh, finally we've 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 had a, a stable team we've had a, a team that has been able to work together and share that long-term orientation so i think uh, we've we've kept together we have a very cohesive team i think cohesion creates stability creates an environment of safety uh, and uh, I think uh, people, human human beings, perform better in a more in a cohesive environment, and uh, I think that's a, that, that it's back to the culture of the firm and uh, the culture and the team and the, the way we uh, operate together. I think that that's where that, that's back to decision making, decision making and culture, of course, closely linked, but. Uh, it's hard to, then for me to pinpoint just one thing. Uh, it's a combination of factors. You feel like you've been able to look around the corner a little better than maybe others. I mean, is that part of the strategy trying to, you know, I'm going to use a hockey quote, which you may or may not understand, but, mm. <laughs> you know, skating to where the puck is going to be relative to where it is. I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense. I mean, the, 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 the degree to which you have, it appears that you have selected securities that have done just so much better than the, their peers in the benchmark would suggest to me some ability outside of just general compounding to kind of understand, you know, um, you know, where things are going to, where, where markets are going to be much larger in seven or 10 years than they are now. Yeah, I think uh, there's a tendency um, to underestimate sustainability of growth and hence underestimate compounding. We don't, it's hard for, we are uh, too one-dimensional in many ways. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it's the, uh, the underestimation of sustainability and hence compounding that leads to compounding. And uh, we, we are probably a bit more patient than the average investor, one. And two, let me go back to what we talked about earlier. When it comes to the, the discipline around um, the competition of capital, making sure we have, uh, we have uh, tough standards for the companies that are in the portfolio, but don't replace them on a on a quarterly basis, but replace them with a five ten year perspective uh, in mind. I think it's back to also the right to win, 
to really emphasize and understand what companies we, we would like to invest in and understand if there, uh, there's something permanent to the drivers of uh, their, what we call right to win. And you mentioned culture in your previous response, and I read a stat that the average employee has been at the Sea Worldwide for 23 years. That was an astounding number in my mind. I mean, you talked a little bit about safety. You talked a little bit about cohesion. I mean, what are what are some other elements that you think have allowed people, um, or in, you know, kind of incentivized people to stay for so long at the firm? Yeah, I must. Uh, I must uh, uh, adjust you there, Ben. ben it, it's the investment team. Got it. Uh, so on on average, we've we've grown the firm over the years, Ben. So it it, it has not been possible for us. We have a number of people that has been with the firm for more than twenty years, also outside the investment team. But uh, uh, the latest uh, statistic is uh, is ten years. Still, when you take into consideration that we've grown the firm, it's not just the, the, the high level of stability in the investment team, but overall. So, so just to get the, the, the to get that uh, to get that right, um, yeah, it's uh, if people stay on board, knowledge stay on board, and uh, we're obviously doing something right here. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, it's I think uh, it's important to create an environment where people feel uh, they are welcome and where they're part of something that they can that they can uh, yeah they can sense that they're part of something. Thinking the difficulty of be of being a very big organization is it's hard to see you making a difference. Sure. I think we're trying to to hit the balance between being a firm that has critical mass, and then at the same time, focusing on people rather than systems, people over systems. And at the end of the day, uh, star performers, uh, key people, not just in the investment team, but overall in the firm, needs a place to be, needs to be respected, connected, and we are we are creating that environment. We can always do better. Um, so far, so good. And I think um, culture, uh, culture doesn't happen without cohesion. Culture does, you can't build a culture in an unstable with, with people not staying on board. Sure. So, so you create that culture through cohesion stability. There are actually interesting studies also made here. Uh, we can, the, you see that that there are teams that uh, beat above their weight, not necessarily because the individuals are particular um, character and strength, uh, but uh, where the team uh, is very good uh, together, and uh, that might be part of it. And um, so that that would be my comment uh, to your to your excellent question there, Ben. And you've talked about being right more than you've been wrong, and and that it's always helpful. Um, and that brings me to a specific security um, that many people will now know and may not have known two years ago, um, which is Novo Nordisk, the Danish company that has become so well known for its highly impactful weight loss drugs. 
I'm just wondering about your history with this company and whether that like that was part of your thesis when you're investing in it or is this something you've owned for 15 years? I'm just, you know, when I see something that someone appears to have been so right on, I'm curious about what the genesis of the uh, investment was. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so, so this is a, this is a name that has been in the portfolio uh, for more than 12 years. So it's been an important part of, of compounding over over those that period, and um, this is a company uh, that is actually turning one hundred years, um, and um, it was uh, it was built on on uh, it was a a man that uh, unfortunately um, had the experience of his wife uh, getting diabetes. He then heard about a breakthrough in Canada uh, uh, on insulin, and he was allowed to produce um, to create to create a production of insulin. And eventually, that evolved into uh, the diabetes giant uh, Novo, di uh, with diabetes at least being uh, the main disease that uh, Novo products um, treat. So it's about domain expertise. They have been nerding around solving uh, the diabetes uh, problem uh, for 100 years. And during that process, uh, GLP-1 GLP comes up and, and obviously finding out that there are some very good side effects to this drug. And, and here we are uh, in a situation where a new product has evolved out of the domain expertise built over 100 years. And it's not an automatic that, 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 that you execute uh, uh, accordingly. Uh, yeah, you can, you can be a, a, an innovative uh, company, but, but what Novo has been, uh, is also an, a very uh, a very efficient producer, a scale producer. So it's back to the, it's an example of what I highlighted earlier. It's the combination of domain expertise and scale, and then of course hitting a tailwind. Uh, and um, it's it's safe to say that there are many uh, many societies, governments, individuals. That, that really likes a, an easier treatment around um, obesity. There are so many side effects, not just um, from an individual, but also from a societal uh, perspective. So there, there's, uh, there, are, there are many um, things coming together here, but we've, been with, we've uh, followed the stock for 30 years plus, uh, and, um, and the, the in the strategy, uh, 12 years, we owned it earlier as well, but it's 12 years ago since we, uh, we, we took the, the latest position. And after stocks done so well, I start to think a lot about cell discipline. Um, and you yeah. always talk about the constant competition for capital, which I think is really healthy in the portfolio, but I could see yourself being somewhat tied and to and maybe enamored with a company that's done so well so how should we think about 
your process for determining when the right time to sell Novo would be? We are, we are, I, I have to go back to your, to, to, to my comment around competition for capital. So that's what's keep us, uh, what, what's keeping us clear headed and also systems uh, around uh, a maximum position size. And eventually when a, when a cop, when a company trades very far from its historic multiple range, you start asking more questions. Um, so it's, it's, I can't give you a short answer on that. It's, it, it's the job, but it's our job to understand that. And uh, uh, taking uh, what, uh, what I guess you also highlight here and, and look for is uh, us taking a portfolio view. So yes, we, uh, we invest in 30 stocks, but we also try to put together the portfolio in a way so that so there's a there's a balance of risk you would typically see also and over the years we've had the view that we want companies that are slower growing companies and, and combining that with higher growing companies within the sustainable growth space because that gives you some level of diversification well, well i'm brought up in a way that you have to you have to be able to afford to take risk. Great. So having a base of stable companies um, helps you when you take on a bit more risk. That's an interesting point. And I think, I don't know the answer to this, but it feels like, you know, being in Denmark was probably helpful in identifying a, like a homegrown company. I'm interested in any of the other benefits of, of kind of being outside of, you know, New York or, or London or other financial hubs. Warren Buffett's talked a lot about being in Omaha um, as it relates to his ability to tune out a lot of the noise from financial markets. Do you feel like being located in Copenhagen often offers similar benefits to you? The financial sector and uh, is definitely smaller than than when we visit uh, around the world. And actually, I think that there is an advantage that goes against the Novo example, and the example is us not having a particular home market bias. Mm. Because we have a very narrow stock market and Scandinavia is a small part of the world. So I'm brought up with generations of Danes, Scandinavians are brought up with having a global perspective. So we are small export oriented co uh, uh, countries. So in our DNA, there's a uh, there's a there's a seeking out out of your own country, so and so as as again from stock uh, stock picking perspective, little if no home market bias because we can't have it. So when I started in the business, uh, there were uh, only a few stocks that were uh, interesting and relevant of size. So early early on in my career, I started looking 
for global ideas. And so, in over the over the the, the decades, you build a, a a global experience base, making it possible to compare a Brazilian utility with a Swiss um, pharma company, and and that that is a capability, and it it's like everything. If you train, you become better. And we've trained in comparing and contrasting competition for capital. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. On the topic of having a global perspective and seeking companies outside of your market, you have uh, funds specifically focused on emerging markets, Asia and India. Why do you see those as, what, what do you see as the opportunity for those strategies as you're trying to build up other strategies, you know, so that you're not maybe so 80% is not in one strategy? We have we don't have a, a an issue uh, uh, when, when it comes to eighty percent in one strategy. Uh, the key reason for us uh, launching these strategies uh, fifteen years ago was uh, the thesis: if you want to understand the world of the next decades, you need to understand uh, emerging markets. And the obvious driving force. Uh, with the emerging markets becoming a bigger part of the world economy is uh, demographics. And India is a prime example here. And India is in a very uh, good spot uh, when it comes to delivering growth over the next uh, decades, in our view. Um, so it's, um, it, was a, uh, it was based on the view that uh, to understand the world and to actually put together a good global portfolio, it would also make sense for us to have uh, the emerging market uh, strategies. And uh, by the way, we can then attract talent mm. and have very high level uh, qualified discussions around those companies also relevant for our global strategy. So it's also about the team. It's about having a strong in-house team and having very interesting assignments for them. Uh, and uh, we, have been, uh, we have been successful when it comes to building, uh, uh, and especially an Asia X Japan strategy that is uh, of, of size. And is the goal for there to be clear synergies between the strategies for for instance where you know uh something in the india fund all of a sudden gets big enough gets liquid enough gets you know quality enough to be a candidate for the international equities fund is that is that part of the strategies to have these the kind of the the international the the emerging market funds be feeders for the international fund certainly uh being uh being observant around new ideas that could be relevant for for the global portfolio definitely yes wonderful wonderful and you know you also have a strategy as i was looking through your your various um, offerings that stood out to me uh and it had the word ethical in it 
Maybe you could talk a little bit about your approach to sustainable investing. Yes. Um, for us, sustainable investing is very much linked to uh, sustainable growth at the end of the day and the long-term orientation. So we have seen a, a lot of new concepts come, coming up around sustainability. Um, but if you talk about having a long-term orientation, and if you uh, emphasize governance, uh, and in particular thinking about minority shareholder rights, shareholder rights, stakeholder rights, then you have some of the old words that actually covers what is uh, healthy and we think very much linked to being an owner of a company and hopefully an owner of a company for a very long period of time rather than just trading stocks. So if you wanna, if you wanna be a good neighbor uh, in your neighborhood, you are you're friendly. You think about you think about your neighborhood. You are responsible and and treat people treat uh, people and the environment around your uh, around your house in a good way. Same goes for for the companies. It's it's actually quite basic. Global companies. If you are a global citizen, then you need to 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 be a, a good also where you operate around the globe. And if you want to be in business 10, 20, yeah, I highlighted that our average company is more than 100 years old. So that's the perspective. That's where compounding at the end of the day comes from. And you, and you brought up governance and being a good neighbor in that response. I'm interested in how often you're having discussions with management, how active you are in with management regarding these topics. Is that part of the strategy is to be highly engaged investors or are you uh, more hands-off philosophically? So if, if you are, we would not, uh, describe ourselves there are other uh, investors out there that are um, uh, that are clear impact investors and we have conversations uh, on sustainability issues with all of the companies that we invest in but it is with the within the philosophy of what what I have talked about here um, but that uh, that we have conversations around sustainability sustainability issues yes with our companies we talked a lot about success this firm has had. I don't think any good conversation um, ends without some discussion of mistakes and lessons learned. So I'm interested, you know, you guys have a, a mantra to be, you know, kind of a willingness to pay up for growing businesses, at least a certain degree. I'm interested when their mistakes are made, if there are any consistent themes that show up. Uh, I think uh, that... This goes back to, and this is, would be my experience, um, there's always special angles. But hyped areas attract too much capital, oftentimes. So it would typically be uh, the competitive dynamics that ends up being tougher than expected. Um, we are we are not investors in uh, the the electric vehicle space at this stage. 
I just want to highlight that the electric vehicle space is going to be a very competitive space. We have seen some clear success stories uh, uh, in, in that space, uh, but we, we uh, think we're looking into a very competitive environment where Chinese, Japanese, uh, Jap legacy uh, German players are going to fight for this market together with the newcomers. So it's a big market. But where's the dividend going to come from? We think it's going to be competitive to the point where it's going to be very hard to make money. At this stage of our thinking, let's see how things develop. But this would be our uh, concern. Again, a lot of growth, a lot of hype, and a lot of capital. Not necessarily a great combination for solid returns on capital and, and growth in uh, dividends and earnings. And Sea Worldwide has been really successful when it comes to attracting assets from allocators. You take such a long-term perspective with your equity investments. I'm interested in what you would hope this firm will look like seven years from now on its way you know, to being 100 years old, as you discussed. <laughs> yeah that we live up to client expectations. That, that would be my, uh, that, that's, that's what I would be uh, most, I think, and that, and that way, being a, a bigger firm, we don't set any uh, targets, specific targets uh, that we, uh, that, that, but we, we want to grow the firm because then we can hope for, hopefully help a few others uh, with, with, the, with good returns. And so happy clients. And when I speak to somebody who's been in the seat you've been in as long as you have, I'm always interested in talent and talent development and hiring. You, My guess is you've hired and obviously retained a lot of people over time. Is there anything you've learned? I mean, maybe from mistakes or from things that didn't work the way you had hoped. Is there anything you've learned about attracting and, and, and incentivizing and hiring the right people that would be helpful for people who might be just starting out their journey in, in building out a team? Um, one thing comes to mind uh, here, Ben, and it would be that we have uh, had the principle, we had the principle for, uh, for years, even decades, of only hiring uh, people that uh, had experienced a cycle or two. So hiring very experienced uh, people only. And um, I must say, with uh, uh, we have uh, last, within the last five years, we've hired directly from uh, university for a number of reasons. But I must say it has been a great experience and very positive. So lessons learned, we should, we should probably have started doing that a bit earlier. And, but the, the combination of experience, you need a strong base, I think. And uh, I don't think AI is going to change that, <laughs> by the way. I, I think you need a strong base of very experienced people. Um, you, need to you need to use technologies 
uh, and you need to take on board new uh, people. That's your it's your responsibility. And I also want to say we've had such good experiences uh, so far with the the hirings that we have done there. So so that would be my my organizational sort of comment uh, and and lessons learned. If that, and I hope that could be helpful for somebody else to sure. take note of. So, but we've covered a lot in this podcast, and we're going to close with the question we ask all of our manager guests: What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity set that Sea Worldwide has in front of it? And um, think what what is going on in the world and. Um, in the year of 2023, it's hard not to talk about artificial intelligence and the, 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 the jump we have seen when it comes to AI and its capabilities. I still think, and it could actually be that a, this, uh, this leap in what AI can do is going to be even better for long-term investors. Because I think AI, AI uh, technologies could be used and will be used for short-term optimization because that's how the human brain thinks. We want short-term gratification. <laughs> and I think AI could, could drive and help that. At the same time, you will see opportunities. That, that's one comment. And linked to that um, would be... Um, the enormous amounts of information that we are seeing. The, the other side of AI is the capabilities of generating enormous amounts of fake information. Some people highlight that fake information is growing faster than true information. And what is true information? But So there are some theories around this. At the end of the day, I, I think that the opportunity for us uh, with that is being able to prioritize information and understanding what is the most important uh, part of, of the story. And then, and then, of course, check, do your background checking in order to figure out whether, whether information is correct. I think that we live in the uh, world of transparency, but we also live in the world of information overload. Sure. And I think there is an opportunity there with, with what we bring to the table. Well, Bo, I've really enjoyed hearing about the history of this firm, how uh, rock solid and almost unchanging the, the the philosophy and the strategy and the number of positions is. It's it's and, so, and, and also I like hearing about how old and how much longevity and sustainability you have built in, in the companies in your portfolio. So all of that was um, you know, really insightful. So thanks for being on Compounders. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be part of, of Compounders. Thank you very much. Bo discussed a number of securities during this podcast. I do not own any of them. Bo mentioned a number of securities on this podcast. As of the latest filings, Sea Worldwide did own Norvo Nordisk, Atlas Copco, and Nestle.